the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to Caregiver SOS On Air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation, a program providing help and information for our caregivers who are vital to the health and welfare of so many people in our community. You can hear Caregiver SOS On Air Sundays at 6 p.m. on 930 a.m. The Answer. And now, here are your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zernio. Well, thank you very much, and welcome to Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Carol Zerniel. Carol is a nationally known gerontologist, graduate of Trinity University and University of the Incarnate Word, has a master's in gerontology, and we're just delighted to have her as our co-host on this program. Well, thank you very much. And you are just returned from a pretty neat seminar on Alzheimer's and other forms of dementia, and it was like going to graduate school in science. Well, it, it actually was. You know, I, I had the pleasure. The WellMed Charitable Foundation sponsored the Dementia Summit. It was the research summit for Alzheimer's and related dementias at the National Institutes of Health in Bethesda, Maryland. Now, tell us about that after I let folks know we're going to be talking with Donna O'Donnell Figurski in just a few minutes. Prisoners Without Bars, a caregiver's tale about her husband's experience with a traumatic brain injury. Back to Bethesda. Back to Bethesda. So that's kind of the mothership of all research. I mean, you hear NIH. And so this was very much into the biology, into the research. It's the latest. So you get all, they get all the researchers in the room, and the agenda is packed. I mean, you they don't they don't let you get up and go to the bathroom, and there's there's very few breaks. You're booked from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m., and it's very scripted, and they get their speakers in and out. But it's fascinating because it's it really is looking at at the latest. Where's the research going? What do we know? What don't we know? And I think my big takeaway, and, and this was, I don't know, it was kind of mind-blowing for me at least after uh, looking at Alzheimer's for such a long time, is there is there saying that they're, they're, the relationship between age and Alzheimer's is sort of disappearing. They're not seeing it when they control for all of the other variables. And what they're finding is what they're calling mixed dementia. Now, have you ever heard this term, mixed dementia? Neither had I. So I'm looking at Tina Smith, who runs our Caregiver SOS programs for the WellMed Charitable Foundation, is also you know, a master's in gerontology. We've both been doing this a long time. We're like, I've never heard that. So mixed dementia means you've got, you can have multiple things going on, multiple types of dementia. So Alzheimer's may be the dominant one, but you also may have had many strokes or a stroke. So you've got multi-infarct dementia. You could have um, some sort of cardiovascular disease, which restricts the blood flow to the brain. You could have diet, you know, diabetes. There's dementia and diabetes. So there's just no limit to the number, apparently, of dementias any one person can have. Does that make it harder to find a way... To treat, prevent, cure? Well, what's interesting about it is... Because I want the cure. You want the cure, and so do they. So what that means is now, and it makes perfect sense, if you have multiple things going on, right, then why are the researchers for Alzheimer's and dementia only talking to other research on Alzheimer's and dementia? What they said was, we need to learn from our brethren, our fellow researchers in diabetes, in cardiovascular disease. We want to break it down into these various um, influences that jumble together. You know, it used to be that we just talked about plaques and tangles and Alzheimer's, and everybody thought that was easy. And now we're finding there's not that direct connection um, between the plaques and the tangles and the dementia. You can have plaques and tangles and never exhibit any dementia symptoms. And it's it's sort of that mixed dementia. The, the stat that they also gave me that blew me away was that by uh, 2050, there will be more people 
um, in the United States over the age of 65 than under the age of 65. And so you think about the the need to um, address dementia, and then they talked about health in general and why it's so hard uh, to get any kind of a diagnosis and, and treatment. So let's think about the percentage of the population we have that is older. Only 16% of people ever get any kind of cognitive impairment test. Really? So... 80 some odd percent of the people never get screened for cognitive impairment or dementia until they show symptoms until until somebody you know yeah they're really really um uh, in a bad situation and so they said why is that well they looked at all of the evidence-based um prevention tests like we work with WellMed. we know that there are annual screenings we want every WellMed patient to get and they said if you lined out every suggested or required test a primary care physician needs to run it would take them 22 hours a day to do them well it's not going to happen just just line them up so okay so that's 22 hours of testing that does not include the dementia screening Uh, and so that may be one of the reasons why a lot of people aren't getting screened and so how do we incentivize um, physicians and the healthcare system to say, look, this is important because, you know, that we, we have been hearing that we need to back this up. And what the researchers were saying is we need to start testing people who have no symptoms. I mean, we really need to just back this up to people in their 40s and 50s wow. that have no symptoms. And we need to look at biomarkers. So that's the part of the discussion where we got into mitochondria. And I don't know about anybody listening, but I personally don't talk a lot about mitochondria in my day. doesn't come up a lot. And ligands and other things that we may have built a 3D model once upon a time in science class. But, you know, I'm a social gerontologist. I'm not a medical person. So I was really impressed with the level of detail of knowledge of the brain that all the researchers have. They get lots of respect for me for even just pronouncing the words. Are they getting enough money to do the research? Well, the money is, the money is coming. Uh, th- there's more of it than used, there used to be because there's Congress more people. Congress is getting yeah, older. Yeah, because they're getting older and they all have parents um, that have it. So, so the money's been going up. They're making good progress on that. But, you know, because this was Alzheimer's and related dementias. So they, they did, they talked about this mixed dementia. Um, but the things, the other thing, they also talked about the scarier types of dementia that you don't hear as much about. So FTD, frontotemporal We've talked dementia. About scary. Scary, which hits younger, right? This is uh, FTD. This is somebody who all of a sudden will spend all the money in a bank account who doesn't care that they've been married for 30 years. They just start running around with everybody. Acts out sexually. You know, acting out fine. You know, just all kinds of strange, horrible behavior. You know, telling their kids, I I don't love you. Why would I love you? Just really awful behavior that is so hurtful. Um, And it takes really, it takes a long time to get the diagnosis. So we talked about FTD and we talked about Lewy body dementia, which is the type of dementia that Robin Williams had, you know, and and led to his suicide. And what I found out is we, you know, they talk, the researchers themselves know almost nothing about those diseases compared to Alzheimer's. So think of everything we don't know about Alzheimer's, and now let's multiply that by a 1,000. That's what we don't know about Lewy bodies and about FTD. Now, if you just joined us, you're listening to Caregiver SOS on air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Carol Zerniel, and we're talking about a conference that Carol recently returned from in Bethesda, Maryland at NIH, the National Institutes of Health, on Alzheimer's and other forms of dementia. I want to remind you, coming up in just a few minutes, we'll be talking with Don O'Donnell Figurski, author of Prisoners Without Bars, A Caregiver's Tale, dealing with a husband who suffered a traumatic brain injury and an aneurysm in 2005. Well, I remember a conference you went to a couple of years ago and you came back. We were talking about it and you were just knocked out because one of the speakers said, one of you sitting in this room will live to 150 years old. That's right. Everybody was like, somebody born today, there's somebody who's born today that's right. going to live to be 150 years old. Right. And I'm like, I don't think I want to volunteer to be that person uh, to live to be 150. Uh, you know, that really is Darwin's survival of the fittest. But, but it's true. I mean, right. it is probably true. 
Yeah. Because uh, we do have people that live to be 123. But at what age? Do, better cure dementia. You're gonna. It's going to be like, uh, what's the one fable where the guy lives forever, but he forgot to ask for health? Yeah. And he's, you know, basically a little puddle that can't die. Yeah, you know, exactly. We, you do not want to be that person. No. But you did say something that may give hope, and that is dementia is not necessarily age-related. And yes, we're told uh, people 80 and over have a 90% chance of dis- uh, of coming down with some form of dementia. Well, what they're finding out is there's a lot of there's a lot of diseases that have um uh, a cumulative impact. So there's a, that kind of a theory that we're assaulted by these diseases over our lifetime that like kind Parkinson's. of eat away and can and some uh, viruses and toxins can actually get into our brains. Normally, toxins cannot break what they call the the brain blood barrier. They don't right. get into your brain. But through, um, you know, weaknesses and toxins, sometimes they get into your brain and, and we don't in small doses. And that cumulative effect can be um, a dementia. But uh, for those, since we don't know a lot about some of the other ones like FTD, what I thought was interesting and I did want to share on the air, because what they said was that, you know, PET scans are the new cool thing that, we, you know, that's the colored brains that you see um, on all the doctor shows where they throw up the picture and it's got lots of colors and here's the brain. So I did not know that a PET scan is not, cannot detect FTD. Really? So you want an old-fashioned MRI. So if you have a loved one that has strange, very strange, you know, behavior that seems socio, you know, path- sociologically strange, um, you're not getting a diagnosis that you want. Ask for an MRI because FTD has a whole different look to it, and a PET scan will not pick it up. Wow. I thought that alone was worth the price of admission. Exactly. Uh, because what you want, that's, it, it's so hard to get that diagnosis. And we've interviewed the woman who is executive director of the FTD Association here in San Antonio. And both of us, it was such a powerful discussion. Well, and, and we need to have um, the folks back. You know, we need, because Louis Bodies is really in the, same, in the same vein. I didn't know Louis Bodies was related to Parkinson's. That was another kind wow. of an aha moment. And so they, they've got, um, they're in the same family of diseases. So, you know, the... I guess I would leave you with I was feeling optimistic that some really bright people have are applying their best thinking and they're they're sharing this information with a whole global network and so at the end of um you know at the end of the day they're comparing all of what they've learned with something everybody else learned. It's a larger pool, and we can make progress much faster with these larger pools. And were they optimistic? Uh, I wouldn't Some say of the that researchers. I wouldn't say that they're optimistic on the cure, but they're optimistic on finding root cause. Good place to leave it. We will be talking with Donna O'Donnell Figurski in just a couple of moments. Prisoners Without Bars, A Caregiver's Tale. Along with Carol Zerniel, I'm Ron Aaron. You're listening to Caregiver SOS on air on 9.30 a.m., The Answer. You ever wonder what you can learn from listening to WellMed Radio? Hi, I'm Ron Aaron. Our co-host, Cora Juke, is here, nurse practitioner. What can folks learn from WellMed Radio? You know, we talk about a lot of things such as chronic disease management, how to manage your diabetes, your blood pressure, but we also talk about social issues such as what WellMed offers and what you can do to improve your health and improve your life. And it's something that uh, you're newer to WellMed Radio, and I get a kick out of working with you. What is it you like about doing radio? Well, I like to make sure that my patients are educated, that they know how to take care of themselves, because I only get a brief moment in time to take care of them in the office, and I want to partner with them and make sure they have everything they need at home. Nurse practitioner Cora Juke, I'm Ron Aaron. You can catch WellMed Radio Sundays at 5 p.m. exclusively on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. Be there. Well, we have been promising, and it's always nice to be able to deliver on a promise. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Carol Zerniel. On Caregiver SOS On Air, we're welcoming Donna O'Donnell Figuriski, who is a very special guest dealing uh, with her husband's traumatic brain injury and the other things she does in her life, balancing uh, everything she loves to do with caring for someone who in 2005 suffered a, a TBI, traumatic brain injury. And Donna, am I pronouncing your last name correctly? 
It's Figursky. Figursky. I was only putting yeah, in an extra it. I. So yeah. Figursky. <laughs> Got it. Well, thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. How long had you been married when your husband suffered that traumatic brain injury in 2005? Oh, goodness. I'd have to go back and do some math there. Um, I was married when I was uh, 20, and he had the brain injury when I was about 56. So, 30 some years. many years. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, a long time. Um, and yes. do you mind talking about what happened to him? No, of course not. I would, um, I've been sharing the story because I really want to help other people who might be going through something like this. Um, but David was. Um, he, uh, he was doing exercises in his uh, office across the hallway, and he always did about 12 chin-ups along with his version of Tai Chi and um, just various other exercises. And he was doing the, uh, the 12th chin-up, chin and this time he did 13. And when he did that 13th chin-up, he felt something burst in his head. He felt something, some fluids going to his head. So he came into the bedroom to me and with his hand covering his eye, and uh, and then the pain just got more and more intense, and I called the paramedics. Oh, what did, so the, what did the paramedics say? Well, they were actually kind of uh, very routine about it, just asking what happened. You know, I'm thinking, good grief, he's, he's in such uh, you know, horrible pain. But um, so they eventually, you know, took him to the hospital. But as soon as they put the um, uh, the ventilator on his on his mouth, he went into a coma. I thought at first, oh, that's good because I thought he had just been relieved of the pain. But apparently, he had actually gone into coma at that point. So um, it wasn't so good, actually. Uh, but uh, we got to the, hos- the hospital, and, and he was uh, had uh, his first uh, brain injury surgery. So did they did they determine was it like a stroke where he, he had burst a blood like vessel a or, an, or an aneurysm? Well, they actually called it a subarachnoid hemorrhage, which is a brain bleed, and that's what they went in to deal with first. And uh, so they they went in to evacuate the blood. It was a very long operation, much longer than they expected. And when the doctor came out of the um, operation. He was flanked by two nurses, who, and he said, your husband, um, you know, he made it through, but we can pull the plug tomorrow if he's not any better. And I went, oh, my gosh. You know, and I thought, he's not going to be here tomorrow. I'll get him to, a, you know, his home hospital. But anyway, uh, at that point, when I did get him over to Columbia Presbyterian Hospital, which is where David was a professor uh, at the university, and um then they told me he had an aneurysm. And then once they took him in a, a week later to take care of the aneurysm, to remove that, then they came out of surgery and said, well, he fared well in that surgery, and, but we ha- he also has an AVM, an arterial veno- venous mal- malformation. And uh, that's a tangle of blood vessels in, uh, in your brain. And... Um, they are congenital. You are born with them. Usually they do not bother anybody. They, you know, it, they just are there. And you won't even necessarily know they're there. But for 1% of the population, they are havoc, you know. And David was that 1%. You know? So we had to have that removed. So David had three brain surgeries in less than um, two weeks. And he was not supposed to survive any of them. The percentages the doctors gave me were really, really small. Wow. What so- were you thinking all that time? Oh, gosh. You know, I think that uh, I often say, say that I was like an energizer ostrich. I just kept busy. I just kept, uh, you know, uh, thinking. You know, so I, I actually wasn't really thinking I just kept myself busy calling the family, getting people, you know, telling people that what was happening. And I didn't believe the doctors would, you know, that he wouldn't come back. I just couldn't get wrap my head around that. So I just kind of kept my head in the sand and kept extremely busy. Uh, so if you can imagine the Energizer uh, bunny, just make it an ostrich with his, you know, her head in the sand. Now stay, so, with, um, stay with me just a minute. I want to remind folks who may have just joined mm-hmm. us. 
You're listening to Caregiver SOS on air on 930 AM, The Answer. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Carol Zerniel. And we're talking on the Caregiver SOS on air hotline with Donna O'Donnell-Figurski about her husband suffering a brain injury back in 2005, went through a series of brain operations, and the prognosis at that time was not very good. Fade to black, come up on 2019. He's still living. Yes, he is, thankfully. And how well, is he I doing? Think there, was a, there was a little bit in there. I, as he went into each surgery, and the, uh, par- the paramedics, or no, not the paramedics, but the supporters were po- uh, post, you know, sending him into surgery, I whispered in David's ear, despite the fact he's in coma, I, I'll never forgive you if you don't come back to me. So uh, he did. <laughs> I'm sure he heard you. <laughs> I not, think he must have. He uh, wasn't going to let you down. A long way. Well, how long was he in the hospital before he, I don't know if he went to rehab or came home, but what, how long was it before he came home to be with you? Uh, it was three months. It was April 1st. And I thought, what a joke that was because David came home with a G-peg, you know, uh, so that's a hole in his stomach where I had to pour the food into him. And uh, he, he, he was, you know, like a rag doll. He had nothing, you know, left to him. And he was reduced to an infantile state. So here I brought home uh, about a 130-pound baby. You know, he had lost about 20-some pounds in the hospital. And, I mean, that's basically what it was. And he had to go through that whole growing up stage. He did it a little faster than a, a normal a baby would do. But he went through all the stages. So were you working at the time? I was. I was teaching first grade at the time. And the morning I got into the ambulance with David, I called my secretary and said, I don't know when I'm coming back. And so they, they got a long-term sub for me. And um, I, I stayed in the hospital 12 to 14 hours every day, whether it was the hospital or the rehab. And he went into rehab two weeks after the hospital. So I had thought I'd go back to work after uh, when he re- reached the rehab. But David was, uh, he tried to get out of bed, and, uh, and so he was, had to be restrained. And so they were putting, lar- and he was trying to pull out his, uh, his, all the tubes that were connected to him. So um, I had to, you know, he had huge gold, big mitts on, like boxing glove mitts, only soft white ones. And um, I, he, he, if I wasn't there, he was going to be restrained all day. So I again called this to my principal and my superintendent, and they extended my leave uh, indefinitely. And I used up all my sick days and I used up all my personal days until David was able to come home. Well, you, know, you mentioned that he had to grow up again, and, and what a, it's different yeah. about someone with a brain injury uh, versus Alzheimer's is people with Alzheimer's don't improve, um, and people with brain injury come back. Uh, sometimes all the way, sometimes a limited amount. Uh, and so you talked about him having to relearn everything. What did that look like? Mm-hmm. Well, that looked like he didn't know how to feed himself. Um, he would dri- food would dribble down his, his and out of his mouth because uh, he wasn't able to coordinate the hand uh, to to the mouth. He wasn't able to dress himself. Um, he wasn't able to um, take care of his own bodily needs. I had to get him to the bathroom. Once he got in there, he could deal with it. But that meant all ha- you know, new, uh, new bathroom arrangement with the hand grips and things like that. But he was, uh, he wasn't able to even get up off the couch. I had to lift him from couch to chair to chair to bed. Um, so, and then doling out the pills every day, at least fifteen pills throughout the day. So it was really pretty intense. And, uh, you know, and, and during all of this, he's really, although he's a, awake and aware, he's not really aware of what's going on. And, um, yeah, so it was really kind of, you know, we had to make a lot of adaptions um, to, to make his uh, life work. Now, in the uh, meantime, balance, I'm sorry, go ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt, but you also had children at that time? I did, but I had grown children. So my children were in New Mexico. My daughter was in New Mexico. My son was in California. And they immediately came out and stayed with me for about two weeks. And then they had to return to their homes and their jobs because they also got, um, you know, dispensation to leave. But um, so, yeah, so, so I did have some support for the very first 
a couple weeks. Yeah, David's brothers and family also came in. There were a lot of people initially until the like through the first weekend, and then after my children went home, I was pretty much on my own. When all this happened, uh, you know, I'm assuming you were not a highly trained caregiver, other than caring for first graders. Right. No, not at all. I mean, other than being the, you know, the nurse, chauffeur, chef, everything for your children when they're growing up, uh, that was the extent of it. I was not a caregiver. I had never, you know, that never had crossed my, my thinking path. Well, when we're going to go to break, but when we come back, um, I'd like to hear about, you know, you've got these caregiving year, years. Uh, you, it sounds like you get involved with other people um, who are dealing with brain injury um, and you begin your writing career. So, you know, let, let's talk about what that looks like uh, to, to start a new life with someone who has a brain injury and you're caring for them in your own home. We'll come right back to you, Donna. By the way, she is also a radio host on the Brain Injury Radio Network, and we'll find out about that as well. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel. We're talking with Don O'Donnell Figurski, who is uh, describing the years that followed her husband's traumatic brain injury in 2005. She's also a prolific writer, and we'll talk about that as well. You're listening to Caregiver SOS on air on 930 AM, The Answer. I think one of the things that is amazing is how much we as human beings can put up with and how much we can learn to do when it, we are called upon. We're talking with Donna O'Donnell Figurski, who is the wife of a brain injury husband, a husband who was brain injured. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Carol Zerniel. And uh, Donna, we were talking about how you ended up being a caregiver uh, very suddenly, Right. It was like jumping in the deep end. I mean, one minute you're fine, and the next minute your life is turned upside down. And what did you and learn about something... What did you learn about yourself? Uh, I guess what I learned about me is that I, well, I, I can stick to something for sure. I mean, David and I were married uh, very young. He's been my best friend for years. I knew him when I was 16. I knew I was going to marry him uh, the moment I met him, which is very strange, but it's true. And um, and so I, I felt that, you know, I was already dedicated to him uh, in doing whatever it was, and I was just grateful that he was here. So I guess um, I just learned that I, I you know, I'm, I'm going to follow through no, no matter what happens. I will follow through, and I'll do whatever I can to help everyone else in this kind of a situation, too. So how did you inv- evolve from it's me and David and caregiving to looking at other people who are going through the same thing. I mean, was there something about your experience taking care of someone with traumatic brain injury that made you think there might be others who need some help? Oh, yes. I mean, initially when I was in the uh, waiting room at Columbia Presbyterian Hospital, I had already made up my mind, and we were there for about two weeks, so I had already made up my mind. I'd like to write a pamphlet about this, just as they have in the doctor's offices for Parkinson's or Alzheimer's or diabetes. Uh, there was nothing there for brain injury. So I thought, well, that's really important. We need to, I need to do something. That's still on the back burner. I haven't done that. I ended up writing my book, Prisoners Without Bars, A Caregiver's Tale, which was not in, an intention. It just ended up happening. And, um, and then, you know, after that, now, it wasn't until about 2014, and David's injury happened in 2005. And um, I found Facebook at that point, and I found tons of surviving groups, survivors and caregiver groups for brain injury. And it was then that I thought, you know, this is how I can help. I can, um, I can make a, a, a website, a blog, I guess it is, actually, and I can interview other caregivers helping them and, and survivors helping them to have a voice, giving them a platform so they can tell their stories. Because people would always tell their stories on Facebook and people would respond and then they'd go away. You know, just the stories don't filter down. So I thought, this is a way maybe I can do something to help people. So I started that and it became very successful. I've I've got more than 100,000 views on it now. So uh, it it is being used and... um, and then that went on. From there, 
another person who has a brain injury and had a radio show um, tapped on tapped into me and said, "Would you like to be a host on Surviving Traumatic Brain Injury Radio?" And I said, "No, I don't think so." But she uh, she encouraged me to try it and just do an interview with her about our situation. And I did, and then she convinced me. And, of course, David's in the background saying, yes, do it. Go ahead and do it. You can do this. So I did, and now that's going on almost five years now that I do a twice-monthly uh, show uh, called Surviving, no, what, um, uh, Another Fork in the Road, uh, and it's on the Brain Injury Radio Network. Well, so, um We'll, we'll talk, uh, just talk, a, we'll talk <laughs> a little bit about your title, Prisoner Without Bars, A Caregiver's Tale. Um, you know, I, your, your book is on the list of good reads, and it talks about what a heartwarming story this is. But Prisoners Without Bars sounds a little intense. Well, the way it, it, it morphed into this title, actually. It was a simple title like Surviving Traumatic Brain Injury or Conquering Traumatic Brain Injury. But I thought that was kind of mundane and very simple. And as I was writing the book, there was a, a line that stuck out at me, and it was called Prisoner Without Bars. And I was explaining how David uh, is basically a prisoner without his, uh, of his body. His cognitive brain is perfectly fine, but he has so many disabilities that he is uh, not able to do what he used to be able to do in his life. In fact, he's not even able to leave the house without me because of the, of the serious balance challenges. So I felt that, you know, I just, that title was kind of catchy, and I thought people would, you know, kind of look at that and say, hmm, what is it? And then when I spoke to an agent about the book, she said, no, it's not prisoner without bars. It's prisoners without bars. And I said, no, 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 this is David's story. I'm writing it about David. And she insisted, and I talked to David, and he said, she's right. It is prisoners, because it's also a book about uh, me. It's, it's my, David's story, his events that happened through my eyes, through uh, my emotions and my feelings and how this, how this whole thing is impacting our lives. So that's how it ended up being prisoners without bars. And then it came out to be a caregiving tale, caregiver's tale, because uh, I realized, yeah, it, it was, you know, it, it is all through my eyes and it is his story, but I thought it would be helpful for caregivers to read something like this. We're going to pick this up in just a moment as we keep talking with Don O'Donnell Figurski, who is uh, the author of Prisoners, plural, Prisoners Without Bars, A Caregiver's Tale, talking with her on Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Carol Zerniel. Uh, And first of all, for those who want to uh, hear you on Brain Injury Radio Network, where do they find it? Okay, um, let's see. I'm going to click into something because I always get the, uh, the actual URL wrong, but uh, this will give it to me correctly. So it's on um, the Internet? It is on the okay. Internet, yes. And you go to, uh, if the computer comes up, it's called blogtalkradio.com forward slash brain injury radio. You get to do that twice on the radio. So what is it again? It's blog talkradio.com forward slash brain injury radio all okay. one word all lowercase got it but you know I, I was listening to your story and thinking back about 30 years ago when I started in this business and one of the first um, pleasures I had in terms of giving back to the community was to sit on a board for traumatic brain injury in San Bernardino California and at that point, it was, as you described, everybody was in their homes all alone, not knowing mm-hmm. who else was out there. We were trying to put together support groups. <clears throat> and just the, the advent of Facebook and the Internet and the thought that there's a brain injury network, you know, is, is actually making my head spin just a little bit to, to realize how much more there's out there. There's so much, but yet, um, correct me if I'm wrong, there's also so little. For those who develop cognitive impairment mm-hmm. or brain injuries uh, in later life, in, in adulthood, um, there are not that many benefits. Is that correct? I would agree with you. There are very, you know, I, we couldn't find any um, local uh, support groups. And we did find one about an hour away, but 
David was not happy with it. But there are so many people, if they're not computer literate either, they're not going to be able to have access to social media groups. So, um, but there, I think in every state, well, I know in every state, there is, uh, there, there is a, um, I'm going to give you a, a URL. It's Brain Injury um, Association of the United States. Okay, so it's B-I-A-U-S-A dot org. That's the thing. Now, that's uh, the umbrella ones throughout the country. Each state will have a chapter of that. So folks can get a hold of somebody in their state and see if they can get some help that way. I'm in Arizona, and the BIAAZ, Brain Injury Alliance of Arizona, is amazing. They do so much and bring people in. But again, Carol, what you said, uh, if people are elderly and they don't have the uh, ability to get to these places, it's difficult. Well, what about the caring in the home, the cost of care? I mean, have you done this all by yourself? Have you had to pay to get some help, you know, to support you? I pretty much have done it by myself. In the beginning, um, I did have some friends of my daughter's who stayed with us for a period of time while I was able to go back to work. And then in summers, I take over again, and then we get somebody again. So, um, but that only happened for about a year. And then David actually went back to Columbia Presbyterian, up Columbia, not Presbyterian, Columbia University uh, in his capacity of his professor job. Uh, and he went back to his laboratory uh, in 2006, in September. He was still very physically disabled, and he still is to this day, but things are a little less than they were at that point. So uh, when he was at work, I was at work, and he always had a professor friend who would pick him up and take him. So he was, like, from door to door, and then once he's in the building, he was okay. What was his so, specialty? Um, what was his specialty? Right. What do you do? He was a molecular biologist. So he, he basically had a, a scientific lab that had uh, graduate students, Ph.D. students, and uh, technicians, et cetera. Uh, that he was guiding their research, and they would get their PhDs under his guidance. And you said he he is cognitively intact um, now. He, yes, he has been from the very beginning. Uh, that that is a saving grace for us, I think, because we'll take the physical disabilities any time. But his uh, his cognition is is perfect, and uh, he was able to actually even in the hospital, in the rehab hospital, his. His uh, students at that time would come over in mass. There were about four or five of them, and they would sit around his bed and they would talk science. And David would, you know, just look at the ceiling totally, but he would tell them what they're doing and what they should be doing. So, uh, and that continued on into our home in the, in the living room until he finally was able to return to laboratory in um, in 2006. Was his speech ever impacted? Oh yes, yeah, and it was it's gotten better now but it's garbled i don't have the the same speech he doesn't have the same speech um sound at all it's um and it's difficult for him to talk but he does it you know well if you were giving advice to others in a similar situation you know what would be your advice to other caregivers who are facing these challenges i think you have to take it one step at a time you can't look at the whole picture because the whole picture is too big, it's too dire, it's, it's too unknown. So I think it's important to just, I live day by day with this. I mean, if I really focused on the future and, and the, you know, what, wish I could have this or wish I could do that, it would be too difficult. So I think that I just live in the moment and we get through day by day. And so I think that is really an important thing. And I think the other thing that I would really suggest for caregivers uh, and I didn't take this advice myself in the beginning, and I, that's why I think it's so important to tell people this because it's important. I mean, you need to. But take time for yourself. Even if it's five minutes, take time for yourself. And what I do when I, when I find books or, or meet people anywhere, I pass out what I call me time stones. They're just little black polished stones that I've gotten, and uh, it's, I, keep, I keep them in a lot of my pockets of jackets or shirts or whatever. And um, whenever I happen to feel one, it reminds me that I'm important, too. And that That's I need to take some time for myself. Now, we unfortunately, unfortunately, we are flat out of time. But I want to share your website uh, with folks who may want to go there, may want to get a hold of your books. So how do they find you? 
Again, they can find me at DonnaFigurski.com, D-O-N-N-A-F-I-G-U-R-S-K-I.com. Um, they can find me on Facebook by just putting my name in. Uh, if they if they put my name in Google, I'm going to come up a lot of ways. So perfect. I'm, I'm not. I'm easily you're, defined. You're, easy you're, to find. you're easy to find, and that's a blessing. Well, Donna, yeah. thank you very much for sharing. And the one thing we didn't get as we talk about uh, your husband uh, today, how is he doing? Uh, he still lives with his his injuries, but uh, he's amazing. Um, he doesn't complain. He just goes through. We do everything we can together. We laugh a lot. Um, you know, so I'm just glad he's here with me. I think you're pretty amazing yourself. Oh, thank you. You're welcome. I, Thanks for talking with us. <laughs> thank you, Carol. Okay. Thank you, Ron. It's Bye-bye. been a pleasure. Bye. Donna Fogersky, and uh, you want to get a hold of her book, Prisoners Without Bars, A Caregiver's Tale. You can Google that and find it as well. Up next. Take 10 with Dr. Jamie Heisman right here on Caregiver SOS On Air on 930 AM, The Answer. You ever wonder what you can learn from listening to WellMed Radio? Hi, I'm Ron Aaron. Our co-host, Cora Juke, is here, nurse practitioner. What can folks learn from WellMed Radio? You know, we talk about a lot of things such as chronic disease management, how to manage your diabetes, your blood pressure, but we also talk about social issues such as what WellMed offers and what you can do to improve your health and improve your life. You can catch WellMed Radio Sundays at 5 p.m. on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. At the end of every one of our Caregiver SOS on-air programs, we bring you Take 10, where Dr. Jamie Heisman joins us, a nationally known psychotherapist and expert not only on addictions but caregiving as well. And our co-host, Carol Zerniel, is here along with me. I'm Ron Aaron. Carol, delirium, we, we hear the term, and often we think of someone who may have been an alcoholic who sees things that aren't there. Why is it of concern to average everyday caregivers? Well, I think that a lot of caregivers don't know what delirium is. They know that they have a loved one that might be in the hospital, might be at home, might be um, in a skilled facility, and all of a sudden it's like they lose their mind, they go crazy. I mean, it's like you said, they see things that aren't there. Um, And so, Jamie, uh, what is delirium? You know, what causes it, and how do we know we've crossed the threshold into delirium when our loved one, you know, is starts has a radical behavior change. Well, you know, this is really an interesting topic for me today because my father, as many as our listeners know, has been in the hospital for some time, and he too um, started becoming delirious in the hospital. And so, it was really important for me to uh, talk his uh, wife down in terms of delirium because. He doesn't really have dementia, but that's always been some sort of a an issue. What is delirium based upon, you know, and, and what is, you know, and how it compares to dementia. But delirium really is a disturbance that results in very confused thinking. In his case, he started seeing bugs on the wall. And he was, you know, the entire environment that he was in, he really didn't know where he was at. And it's usually extremely fast and rapid, and it, it, it can last for hours. It can last for days. Um, but just like Ron was saying, it can be traced to, to the body, issues of you know, metabolic balance, dehydration, uh, medication, and just like, you know, alcohol, alcohol, if you will. So the symptoms of delirium and dementia are similar, but you need like a caregiver, really, a family member there to be able to talk to the providers and, and to really, you know, sort out which it really is. Well, I'm glad you mentioned, you know, different causes, because in the case of my own mother, she was um, living in a new assisted living facility, and her new primary care provider decided to put her on a medication to which she had an extreme reaction, and that reaction was delirium, where it was, she had dementia, yes, but the pick, you know, clawing at her skin and the bugs on the wall and the, you know, things in the room and the shadows and everything, you know, she would not sleep. She would not eat. She was agitated. She was distraught. I mean, it was every every bad behavior all rolled up into one big whirlwind. 
Yeah, we started tracing it back to a couple of things, actually. One was really the prednisone, which was initiated, you know, without really our consent uh, to, to my dad. And after that, he really did start seeing things that didn't exist. And he had a particular restlessness and an agitation about him. Um, and also, kind of um, oddly enough, one of the other things that was that he got a flu shot before he went into the hospital. And even a flu shot, you know, can, can create an entirely different sort of metabolic sort of response. And, and, and we weren't sure which one it really was. And that's why it was so important for Carol, his wife, to be there to, to lay out really the, the history and the chronology to the providers of what was going on. And, and, and literally, um, if you will, to observe his personality changes from before he got into when he got in. Part of what's really fascinating to me, I had a, a former wife who was on medication that triggered uh, delirium, and she saw bats in our bedroom, uh, and they were real to her, and they were everywhere, and they were on her, and they were flying, and they were on the ceiling, and it was very difficult to wake her up and try to connect with her and make sure there are no bats there because your mind plays such incredible tricks for the person struggling with a delirium, Dr. Jamie, they're real. Oh, gosh, were they real. In fact, my father was, uh, you know, asking me to, uh, to take a look and see what types of bugs they were. Uh, and, and this is a, a man who did not, does not have dementia, does not have Alzheimer's, who literally has a job at 91 years old. Um, but the onset of it was extremely quick and very rapid. And it really had none of the qualities, let's say, of dementia. But his attention, I mean, it was laser-focused on, on what he thought was, was bugs. And, uh, again, just the lack of awareness of the entire environment. Well, so talk about why is it dangerous. Because recently I was in Bethesda at the National Institutes of Health uh, for a dementia summit, and there was a speaker that was talking about death related to delirium. Why is delirium dangerous? Well, it, obviously, it, it can create incredible reactions biochemically within the body. I mean, any condition that, that in a hospital stay, for instance, in my dad's case, um, that, that creates this uh, total disorientation, if you will, this huge fear, this rush of adrenaline in his system. I mean, literally, for a man his age, will not just complicate the issue, but can literally kill them. And so, uh, uh, you know, this is one of the extreme reasons. But just as Ron said, it, it's the real deal. When somebody's feeling it, it's almost like a state like where, you know, somebody takes a drug, gets off on it for eight hours, and literally is in another world until they come down, except you're doing this with somebody who's 70, 80, or 90 years old. Well, and that's it's like it's a bad dream, um, think of your worst nightmare and how you feel in a nightmare, and they're awake and they're experiencing that same anxiety. Now, if you just joined us, you're listening to Take 10 on Caregiver SOS on air. He's Dr. Jamie Heisman. She's Carol Zerniel. I'm Ron Aaron. And Dr. Jamie, sorry to interrupt. Go ahead. No, and you're the only one in the room that's actually experiencing it. So you're looking around you, and you know that this has not been the case before. This is why it's important for us to see the delirium as something usually that has sudden onset. You know, our loved one becomes confused and agitated, and, and it lasts, you know, a certain amount of time. But delirium is also usually reversible, unlike, you know, its, it's counterpart, dementia. I mean, the brain will send signals, and, and people, you know, it'll, it'll interrupt their life. But certainly they do come back, and... And when they come back, they are often aware that they have actually seen these. My father, you know, talked about that delirious state. Of course, we, we reminded him a couple of times, but he went right back there to the hallucinations, the restlessness, and the agitation. How did you finally get him over it? We didn't, Ron. That's the interesting part. It was really time. It was um, literally, if, if there was no medication given to him. Um, certainly the, the nurses and, and myself and, and the, any of the social workers knew what was going on at the particular time because we, we knew my father's history. Um, so we just had to literally wait it out. Yeah, and that was, the, I, th- I would say that was a similar case. We had to let the, all the drugs get out of my mother's system 
um, before she kind of came back. But it but it's fairly common in hospital situations. You know, I, I don't know if it's it's the medications or if it's the change of environment, those shifts. You know, everything blurring together. Um, but you know, it, if someone is delirious, that is not someone you want to take home. Would be the, 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 right. the point that I would make. When, you know, and I actually have known people that are like, "Oh, they're kind of crazy. You need to get them out of here." No, 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 no. <laughs> no, no. And what it would really creates in the hospital because I was looking at it myself afterwards is, is the constant room changes, people coming in and out, the lighting is bad, people sleep is, is awful, um, and then there's you know constant excessive noise. You always hear these beepers and codes going off left and right. Um, so. This is really an environment, if you will, a hospital that's not meant to eliminate or, or, or reduce delirium. Well, and, and delirium can occur post-hospitalization. So you, you bring someone home, and they were fine in the hospital, and then they lose it once they get home. So, um, you know, we've got about a minute left. What would you tell caregivers uh, related to, de- to delirium and what to watch out for and what to do? Well, I personally, again, if they're in a hospital or a skilled setting or an assisted living facility, pay particular attention, if you can, to the environment, uh, you know, and, and listen to your loved one. I mean, are you, if they're starting to become paranoid in some way or hearing them moaning uh, or, or, or feeling real sense of ap- some sort of apathetic response, uh, take a look at the environment and see if the environment's not creating it, if the lighting is okay, if you can orient your loved one to come back to, to where they're at. Um, it's, it's extremely important for us to, to really make sure that the setting is, is someplace where our loved ones feel safe. When somebody is not safe, and I guess this is the best way to end this segment, um, they can never grow. They can never get better. So obviously make everything consistent and make things around them recognizable and orient your loved one on an ongoing basis no Bingo. matter where they're at. Thank you. Got to stop you right there. You've been listening to Take 10, part of Caregiver SOS On Air with Dr. Jamie Heisman, Carol Zerniel, and me, Ron Aaron. We'll catch you next week on Caregiver SOS On Air. You've been listening to Caregiver SOS On Air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation. Email suggestions and comments on this radio program to radio at wellmed.net. And join your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zerniel, for another edition of Caregiver SOS On Air. On 9.30 a.m., The Answer. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.